Well, speaking of Scripture, we're going to look to the Scripture. And we, uh, we're in the Christmas season, and so we're taking sort of a break from our, our journey through the Gospel of John. Uh, and today we will find ourselves in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Uh, I'm doing a kind of a series, and I'll tell you now what I'm doing is some women of Christmas. Now, we started last time with the four women uh, in Jesus' genealogy. Uh, today we're going to look at another woman related to Christmas, and that's Elizabeth. Elizabeth. So I encourage you to find your way to Luke chapter 1, and I'll be reading uh, some portions of this long chapter to focus on this person named, um, named Elizabeth. We first see Elizabeth, and you can, by the way, track with your bulletin, there's an outline there. We see, first see Elizabeth coming up in chapter 1, starting in verse uh, 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zecharias of the, of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. And then it goes on and describes an encounter that, uh, that Zechariah had there in the temple. And then it will pick up again, starting at verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Well, that's a, portion, a partial reading of some of the passages we'll look at as we see Luke describe for us Elizabeth. The first verses of Luke, Luke tells us that uh, he has done his research Others had already written gospels, but he wanted. He, he went out and, and interviewed and did research as he compiled uh, this life of Christ. And one of the things we gather is, remember, Luke was uh, associated with the Apostle Paul. And so one of the things I've suspected was he traveled with Paul, and when Paul was in prison in Israel for two years in, in Caesarea, uh, a palace of Herod down on the coast, during that two years of his imprisonment, I'm, I'm gathering that, that Luke must have taken the opportunity to see the sights of the gospel and to talk to the people who'd been a part of the gospel. And every evidence is he talked to Mary. And that's why he can tell us what was Mary's response when the shepherds came. He knows because he asked her. He seemed to have a, a, a lot of women uh, are mentioned in Luke that aren't mentioned elsewhere. And so I, did he, I don't know if he met uh, Zechariah and uh, uh, Elizabeth, or if he just heard her testimony from others. But he reports to us that as he begins, uh, he says that 
there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest. Right from the beginning, he starts giving us information. It was in the days of Herod. Now, Luke is a very accurate and careful historian. And so as he's writing, he begins by telling us he's writing to a person named Theophilus. Um, when he says it's from the days of Herod, that instantly puts some dates on his ministry. Herod was king of Judea from 37 to 4 BC. So just from the sense of chronology, it puts a date on when these events happened. Elizabeth and Zechariah were alive during that time frame of Herod. But it also tells us something because um, Herod was famous and well-known. He's called Herod the Great because of the great, uh, he was a great military leader. He was a great builder of monuments to himself. But he wasn't great in terms of spiritual or moral categories. But they called him Herod the Great. He was well known. So to say that they were living and serving the Lord during the time of Herod, for us that may or may not mean much. But imagine if you said so-and-so was uh, uh, serving the Lord and following and serving the Lord uh, in Germany during the time of Hitler. Well, that does more than tell you chronology, doesn't it? It's like, oh, during the time of Hitler. Or if you said so-and-so was pastoring a church, he and his wife, uh, in Russia during the days of Stalin. You know, if you know your history at all, that, the name instantly says a lot more than the dates. It gives you a feel for what, was, what that period was like and how difficult it was to be a faithful follower of the Lord in a time of spiritual and moral darkness. Herod was a powerful and wicked ruler. And though he was a great builder, he was a man of violent hatred. And the greatest enemy to him and the one to where he'd pour out his violence most was anyone he thought might be a threat to his own rulership. And so that will come up later in Matthew when he hears that the Messiah has been born. His first thought is, but he might take my throne. Herod was a wicked man. So as we read about Elizabeth and Zacharias serving the Lord faithfully in the days of Herod, that's an instantly an encouragement to us. Because here's a couple an older couple. So they've, they've had a life of service and faithfulness in a period of darkness. Sometimes we might think because times are hard financially, we might go through times of financial distress, or live in a period of, of increasing moral and spiritual darkness as I see in our land and in many parts of the world. Here's an encouragement. Here's a faithful couple that are following and serving the Lord as he has called them. Where they are, where he's planted them, they're blooming for the Lord. And that's just a reminder for us that we too can be useful and, and faithful even in dark times, even in difficult times. And so here's this couple that are serving the Lord. And what's also encouraging, uh, they, they weren't, 
They were, they've often been called uh, country folk. They lived in, in a village in Judea, not in one of the major towns. They were simple people, faithful people. And God writes their names for us. As a reminder, he sees those who are faithful in small ways, in dark times. Here's this delightful couple. We're told of this couple that they were righteous before God. Now that doesn't mean that they're, they were you know, sinless or perfect. But by saying they're righteous before God, that tells us if in, they were righteous in God's eyes. Now you can say someone was righteous among people and that may or may not make much difference. But to say they were righteous before God means they were believers. They were justified by faith, which has always been God's way of, of salvation. You can go right back to Genesis 15, verse 6, when God tells us about Abraham. It says, he believed in the Lord and it was counted to him for righteousness. The way of salvation has always been the same. It's through faith in the Lord. As it was true of Abraham, it was true of this couple. They put their faith in the Lord God. They trusted him. They followed him. They recognized their sin and they trusted him for forgiveness. Their faith was in him. And so that's why God says they're righteous before him. He declared them righteous through faith. But they also lived out that faith because we're told they were walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord and were blameless. Now that doesn't mean they never sinned. But whenever they sinned, they took advantage of the sin offerings and they would confess their sin and be restored in their walk with the Lord. But they were faithful servants of the Lord. They lived out their faith consistently. So right away, this kind of reminds me of Job. Remember when, when uh, Job had all these difficulties come on him and his dear friends showed up and told him he must be really bad or he wouldn't be suffering so badly? I love the fact that we're already told before that happens in the book of Job and God looked at him and saw him as a righteous one. And he, he could point him out and said, behold, my servant. These were living their faith. In, when, it, when it wasn't popular, when it wasn't easy, they trusted in the Lord and they lived their faith consistently before the Lord. But we're told they were advanced in years. I'd love to do a survey and say, what does advanced in years mean to you? Most of us would take our age and add something to it. So I would say advanced in years probably means they're in their 90s from my perspective. From the Jewish perspective of the day, um, you would be considered advanced in years when you made it into the 60s. So they probably had at some point received their Medicare cards and they were uh, somewhere at least in their 60s. They could have been older, but, but in other words, that gives us a perspective. They were advanced in years. Now, in our day, that often means time to put them out to pasture. In biblical thinking, being advanced in years was an honorable thing. One of the verses uh, I think is really important, and, and children should memorize this. Deuteronomy 7.14. It 
You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male. That wasn't the one I was looking for. Um, Where is that verse? I should have memorized it. Well, the, the Old Testament law said, when an elderly person entered the room, you're to stand. I like that. And so th- this was a time of advanced years. But here's why I was going to read Deuteronomy 7.14 to you. The problem is, and here's the but, they were advanced in years, but they had no children, no child. And so that meant their, you know, that they, they lost that joy. But more than that, that probably meant they took a lot of criticism. And here's what I was going to read in Deuteronomy 7.14. God told Israel, you shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. Remember how I mentioned Job, how people came to him in his suffering and said, you must be really bad or God wouldn't do this to you. So people would look at this godly couple who in God's eyes were justified believers who in God's description, they walked their walk consistently, but people around them said they must be bad sinners or God would have given them children. How we need to be careful not to speak for God. God tells us that's not why they were with, without child. As a matter of fact, he had a special plan for them. But they probably had people whispering. They probably had people shaking their heads and saying, Well, they put on a good show, but they obviously aren't following the Lord or they'd have children. No, they didn't have children because God hadn't given them children. But in spite of the whispers, in spite of the criticisms, in spite of the disappointments, they walked with the Lord. And again, that speaks of their faith. Now, sometimes when we have a longing for something in our life and and, and it doesn't happen, we might become resentful or bitter. I've seen people say, well, uh, God didn't meet what I was hoping for and expecting in my life, so I'm going to turn my back on him because he must have turned his back on me. That wasn't how they approached it. They trusted the Lord. God is good, and he gives what is good. We'll trust him. We'll serve him. We'll love him. Well, I, I skipped over a section of what happened in in. His li- in their lives. You probably remember the account. Zechariah was a priest. And he was in the order of Abijah. And, and each order would, would spend twice a year, they would do a, a period of duty there in the temple. And so he was ordered, of the, his, his order was on duty. And so it had fallen to him, I say fallen, it was his joy to be chosen to be the one who would offer incense that year, that day. That was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. If you remember the temple, there were two parts of the actual building. There was the Holy of Holies. Inside there was the menorah and the table of showbread. And there was the golden altar of incense, which was right next to the, the veil. Behind the veil was the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. So once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and put blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. But every day, 
a priest would have the privilege of offering incense on that altar, that golden altar, incense altar, right in front of the curtain. So he was as close as you could get to the Ark of the Covenant. And it was considered one of the great privileges, so much of a privilege you could only do it once in your lifetime. And it was chosen by lot. They would just draw lots and, and it was his time to go. When he went in, he would be the only one in that room. And it was a sacred thing to go up to the ark. It had been prepared, cleaned off from previous uh, coals. Someone else had set up burning coals, taken off the altar of burnt sacrifice. And as he went, he was to offer certain prayers. And, th and that incense would represent the prayer of Israel going forward. It was considered such a sacred moment. Have you ever walked into a dark room and be, be, been surprised to find someone's already in there? No one was supposed to be in that room, and as he's offering incense, standing next to the altar of incense, there's Gabriel, the angel. He was advanced years, but apparently his heart was good because he didn't have a heart attack and drop on the spot. And I wonder if he might have, for a moment, almost lost the incense. And the angel uh, spoke to him. Verses 13, uh, I've read them before. He said, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer is heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You should call his name John. Whenever you see an, uh, someone encountering an angel, almost always the first words are, don't be afraid. Um, they had a very... I mean, when we think, when we see pictures of angels, right, they're, they're cute little babies or uh, beautiful women. No, an angel was a warrior. And so when he saw this powerful being where he shouldn't be, he was afraid. What does this mean? Don't be afraid. Your prayers have been heard. Do not be afraid, he says. Your prayers have been heard. Literally, and that's in the past tense, your prayers were heard. What prayer? He says, he goes on and says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. Now, was he praying for a child there at, the, in the, at that day? I don't think so. I think they had probably given up on that and said, okay, God has said something different. We're not going to have a child. No, if, if he, was, he was saying certain prayers, some have said maybe he was praying that God would send Messiah and that was the answer. The, the, when he says your prayer was heard, that's in the past tense. He's referring to those, those prayers he prayed before. And that word heard isn't just um, I hear, I heard. It has the idea of to listen to. God has paid attention to your prayer and you're going to have a baby. God had heard, and he was right on time in his answer. Have you heard probably that every, God answers every prayer? And there's three ways that he typically answers. Yes, no, and wait. In this case, for all the time that they had prayed for a child, God had told them, wait. No, they didn't hear that, but that was the answer. And now, advanced in years, God says, now you're going to have your baby. Now, now some of you know, okay, if, you're, if, you, if you've cracked through the 60s, 
you might be thinking, and I've often, my wife and I have often commented, you know, God shows his wisdom by, by giving children when we're young. Uh, it's great to be a grandparent, but, but there are certain limitations. Some of you know, okay, you get down on the floor and, and play with them, and you've got to have a plan for how you're going to get back up. Uh, and so he's probably thinking, oh, so we're going to have a baby. Hmm. But, but here's the plan, and, and, and here's the, point, think, the key to remember. The timing was the Lord's. And God had a purpose in that. They'd prayed in faith. And when God hadn't sent the child, they yielded in faith. That doesn't mean they weren't disappointed. But the, the fact that they continued to follow the Lord showed they weren't bitter or resentful. They yielded and said, okay, Lord, if that's not your plan for us, we want to be faithful where and how you want us to be. He said, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You should call his name John. You'll have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Notice he gets specific. Not just you're going to have a baby. It's a boy and you're going to name him John. And, and it says many will rejoice the whole town will be in wonder and delight over this birth. Can you imagine, again, he wasn't thinking in this direction at all. He's thinking, I get to worship the Lord. And I'm suspecting if I were in a situation like that, don't mess up. Don't drop the incense. Don't set the veil on fire. Get it right. What a privilege to be here in this place next to the Ark of the Covenant, out of nowhere comes, guess what? Elizabeth is going to have a son. You're going to name him John. How his mind must have been spinning. But then he goes on to tell more about this child. He, this child, John, will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Filled with the spirit from his mother's womb, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the, the hearts of the fathers to the children disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The language that's being used there comes out of the book of Malachi, the last prophet in our Old Testament, the last book. Speaking of the one who would go before the Messiah and he's hearing, my son, will be the herald for the Messiah. My son is the one who will point to the Messiah. What a thrill. Through him, many hearts will be turned to the Lord. My son will, in these dark days, my son will have the privilege of turning many to the Lord. Again, how his mind must have been spinning. Mercifully, the angel didn't tell him everything. He did say he will turn many to the Lord, but not all, and in fact, not most. The nation, though many will come to faith in Jesus, will still reject Jesus and turn him over to the Romans for crucifixion. But many will believe. 
The angel doesn't tell him, yes, he's going to have a special growth. And he talks about how he has to be prepared for, for this life. He's going to have a wonderful ministry. He doesn't tell the hard spots. He'll be rejected. He'll be imprisoned. He'll be executed. Gabriel mercifully, maybe Gabriel didn't know that at this point, but John isn't told that part of the coming child. But this godly couple is told that they're to raise a man who will serve the Messiah and turn many to him. And talked about the fact that you know, he wouldn't uh, eat, he wouldn't uh, drink or alcohol during his whole life. Uh, that some of those things point to him fulfilling the Nazarite vows. And some say he was, he was a Nazarite. You would often do that on a temporary basis. Like Samson, remember, he was a lifelong Nazarite. And so that's why he couldn't cut his hair. And that was part of the Nazarite vow. But we're not told anything about his hairstyle. Um, and so maybe he wasn't a Nazarite, but these were also true, as, as Zechariah knew, when you were on priestly duty, no alcohol. You didn't want that in any way influencing you. And so he's going to be on duty his whole life. Skipping down to verse 24 and 25. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and she hid herself five months saying, thus, says the Lord, thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So here she had spent years longing for a child. She had by grace moved on. Now she's going to have a child and what is her response? She hides from public view for five months. Again, many want to think, why? Some think it was out of uh, meditation and worship. Well, I'm sure that was part of it. But again, just, just imagine, she's well into her 60s or beyond. Can you imagine if she started running around her village telling everyone, I'm going to have a baby? Poor Elizabeth. She so desperately wanted a child. Now she's making it up. At five months, it'd be hard to argue with her. Really, Elizabeth? It's a miracle. It surely must be. And God has told us great things about this child. So I think she waited the five months because who would believe her? Well, can't you see I'm, uh, the child has grown up, Elizabeth, You've been eating too many Christmas cookies. That's all this is. By five months, I think, Elizabeth, this is wonderful. You truly are carrying a child. Wow. What a gift from the Lord. What a wonder from the Lord. And there may have been some humility in that. If you're running around saying, look what God has done, people might say, are you boasting? You're some kind of a miracle baby. We see her humility all through this. But Elizabeth waited until five months and then it became known. Elizabeth saw the hand of the Lord and she rejoiced. And when she talks about her reproach taken away, this is going to finally dispel all of those, oh, that's because you're such a bad person, God wouldn't give you a child. She's finding herself vindicated before the public and privileged to this calling. 
Elizabeth and Zechariah rejoiced in God's gift. How often did they? Just probably every time they had a prayer together, they would think, oh, Lord, what a miracle. What a wonder. Now, remember, by the way, Zechariah didn't believe at first, right? How am I going to know this is true? And Gabriel almost seems to take a front. I am Gabriel. I come from the presence of God, and you're arguing with me? Okay, you're not going to talk again until the baby, until this is all accomplished. And so he was mute from then on, which is fascinating because he's supposed to leave the temple and pronounce a benediction on God's people, and he couldn't. And he gestured to them, so they, they tell, it tells us that he indicated he saw some kind of a vision, maybe of an angel. And again, I've often said, did he start flapping his arms and say, you know, who knows? But it was, it was a stunning thing there in the temple. But because of his unbelief, he couldn't speak. Now, later on, he's going to write something. And so he must have, he must have written it all out for Elizabeth. And how that, they must have gone back and forth between sign language and writing of him filling in all the details. It was a gift. It was a blessing. It was a stewardship. It was a calling. Doesn't every parent feel that on some level? Oh, this child is a gift. This child is a responsibility. Who is adequate? Who is capable? Who is wise enough? No one. We need God's grace. How much more when your child is directly predicted in the Old Testament and he has the privilege of pointing people to Messiah? But they were prepared. In their own lives, they had been faithful. And they were told from before birth, he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's been suggested to be filled with the Holy Spirit, he must have been a believer. He must have been born again. And so this is perhaps the, the youngest regenerated person in history. Because here he is born again and filled with the Holy Spirit before he's even born. And his whole life training was to equip him for a life of dedication to the Lord's service. Well, skipping down to verse 34 and following. Then the angel said to, the, to Mary, how can this be since... Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? Gabriel then had gone up six months later to Nazareth and told Mary, I have good news for you. You're going to have a miracle baby. And she was questioning, how can that be? I have not known a man. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age and this is now the sixth month for her who has been called barren. So she's, told, so she's not saying I don't believe you. She's just saying tell me how this is to be. God, the Holy Spirit, is going to conceive this child within you. And then he gives a, a word of encouragement, and there's another miracle baby already on the way. Your relative Elizabeth is already six months along, elderly Elizabeth. And, of course, in there, I think, is a hint, and you should go see her. And she takes the hint, and she goes to see her. Because if, if she has a miracle birth, she's probably going to believe Mary when Mary says, I have a miracle birth too. 
And so notice in verse 37, it also says, for with God, nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. And here's how we see the connection between Elizabeth and Christmas. She's tied. She's a relative of Mary. And she's connected to Mary in more than just relations. Verse 39 and 40, Mary arose in those days, went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah, entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. She couldn't wait. Now, so Mary is, I mean, Elizabeth is six months along. Mary is, the miracle has just happened in Nazareth. And by the way, we often say the incarnation happened at, at Bethlehem. No, the incarnation happened nine months before Bethlehem in Nazareth. And here she comes with a newly conceived baby, runs in to, to meet and greets Elizabeth in verse 41. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And here's the proof. Gabriel said the baby would be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. And here we see the baby leaping by the enabling of the Holy Spirit. In other words, with understanding. He recognized the voice of Messiah's mother. And he responds with jumping joy. Elizabeth will explain that that's exactly why. It wasn't she was surprised and the baby jumped. She goes on to say, this is what's, for indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ear, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. A couple things to notice here. That baby is a person. That baby has joy in the womb. Already born again and filled with the Holy Spirit, that's unusual. But if you know about babies and being born, often they find that uh, the babies want to hear the sounds they heard in the womb. They recognize their mother's voice. In other words, babies have emotions before they're born. And John had the joy emotion in response to the Messiah coming into his presence. This passage is a passage that indirectly relates to the whole abortion discussion. Because think about abortion being legal and John could have been aborted in many of our states. And yet he had the ability to have joyful response to the presence of the Messiah. He was a person. He was a human being. He had personality. He had emotions. He was a living being worthy of protection. Well, Elizabeth, we're told, was filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, what she's about to say, sometimes mothers will, and parents will say, you know, this is what I think happened. She is now going to speak from the Lord. The Holy Spirit enables her to speak truth. And so her response is to Mary, blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. By the way, do you notice, notice Elizabeth's joy? Over Mary's child. She knows who Mary is. She's carrying the Messiah. Notice her humility. 
How can I be so honored that you're in my presence? This is what this is. This is now I get to use that verse I mentioned earlier, this uh, good memory verse for, for young people. Leviticus 19.32. Parents, write this one down. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God, I am the Lord. In the Old Testament law, you were to show respect for elders, even rising. Kind of reminds me of the time I was in, spent a summer teaching English in Taiwan. And I was asked to go to a public school and give a class to 40 uh, fourth graders, girls, all in the same uniform, all the same haircut. I walked in and they all stood and bowed. I thought, this is great. <laughs> How could we import this? <laughs> but notice they bowed to me because I was the elder. Mary is in a sense, bow Elizabeth is bowing to Mary. Though she may be the elder worthy of respect, though her daughter... <laughs> Her son is, is a prophet of God. She is saying, I'm honored to have Messiah and his mother in my presence. She's filled with joy too. And so we see she is, she is now speaking for the Lord and recognizing who Mary is. And she says, you are blessed And Mary came to her probably for encouragement, the joy of seeing a miracle birth, knowing someone that would um, understand her situation and not assume and criticize as would happen in Nazareth. And, and I think there was some mentoring going on. Elizabeth was a godly woman who mentored this young woman and she begins by honoring Mary for her faith. Verse 45, blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. So in other words, she under, she was, it's been told to, Mary, to Elizabeth by the Holy Spirit that, the, that Mary had heard from the angel and Mary believed. And so she says to Mary, blessed are you. Now, there are many that get Mary messed up there there are some that would say uh, that Mary was without sin and that Mary is to be worshipped and prayed to that's not what she's saying she's saying you know, you know why you're worthy of praise Mary because you believed the Lord you believed his promises blessed is she who believed you're a woman of faith you believe God's word. I honor you for that. One of the things that strikes me as I look at Elizabeth, she was a woman of faith, a woman of obedience, a woman ready to serve, even though it would be challenging, and a woman of humility. How she doesn't say to Mary, I'm six months ahead of you. Let me tell you about my miracle. No. She doesn't even talk about herself. She, she's ready to honor the other. Andrew Murray said, The humble man feels no jealousy or envy. 
He can praise God when others are preferred and blessed before him. He can bear to hear others praised while he is forgotten because he has received the spirit of Jesus who pleased not himself and who sought not his own honor. Isn't that Elizabeth? She doesn't start talking, let me tell you my story. She just delights to see God's story in Mary. Kind of reminds me of someone else, her own son. John 3.30, John said this about Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. Maybe he learned that from his parents. To be humble before the Lord and delight in what God is doing in the lives of others. I saw a couple of illustrations of humility. After Abraham Lincoln had defeated Stephen Douglas and become president, the two were on the each porch of the Capitol for Lincoln's inauguration. That would be hard, wouldn't it? A guy beat you in an election, you go to his inauguration. The president-elect was introduced by Senator Edward E. Baker of Oregon. Lincoln stood beside him carrying the manuscript of a speech, a cane, and his tall silk hat. As he made ready to speak, he looked around for a place to put the hat. Stephen Douglas quickly stepped forward, the guy he beat in the election. He stepped forward, took the hat, and returned to a seat. If I can't be president, he said to a cousin of Mrs. Lincoln, I can at least hold his hat. That's humility. Instead of holding a grudge, he held the hat. Of course, you've heard the old thing, the conductor was once asked, what's the most difficult instrument to play? Second fiddle. Second fiddle. And then one other quote. The humble man receives praise the way a clean window takes the light of the sun. The truer and more intense the light is, the less you see the glass. That was, that was Elizabeth. She didn't talk about herself. She focused on Mary and the Messiah. Well, we'll get to Zech, you know, you can read on and hear about Zechariah and, and, and how God worked in his life. He remember he, he goes on and they want everyone wants to name uh, the baby Zechariah after the father. Or, or, and she, well, no, she says, um, let's, we're going to name the baby John. And they said, John, you don't have any relatives named John. She had been told that in writing by her husband. That's what Gabriel said to name him. Remember that, that great scene that said John just takes out a tablet and writes, his name is John, and then he could speak. But Mary was a woman of faith, and Elizabeth was a woman of faith who humbly, faithfully served. And what was her greatest claim to fame? She was righteous before the Lord because she had trusted in him for forgiveness and life. What is it she most honored in Mary? Mary believed the Lord's word. And so as we're in this Christmas season, it's a good reminder to each of us who hears these words. Now, we can be like Mary. We can be like Elizabeth. We can believe God's word and receive the gift of salvation. If you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, hear these two women and their testimony. Receive the gift of life and forgiveness through faith in Christ. Recognize he died for our sin, that we might have life through faith in him. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, 
May we have the example of Elizabeth before us, a faithful woman, a believing woman, a serving woman, a humble woman who didn't want the attention for herself but wanted the Lord to get the glory. Father, may may you have the glory in our lives, in our homes, in this our church. And Father, as you spoke with brilliance and bright light of hope in those days of darkness, Father, how we beg that you would do that in our day as well. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.